Hi everyone, it's Jenny here at The Christian Atheist. We have an exciting announcement to make. The publication of John's first book, Through the Looking Glass, The Imploding of an Atheist Professor's Worldview. It's available on Amazon in electronic form and hardcover and paperback. We've purposely kept the prices low so you can enjoy it yourself or give it to friends and family. It's only $4.99 for the electronic version, $9.99 for the paperback, and $12.99 for the hardcover. We understand that many of you might find value in reading the transcripts of our podcast, but we don't want to create any misunderstandings. This book is essentially that, transcripts of the podcast series we called The Machinery of the Looking Glass, the story of my odyssey back to the Incarnate Lord. We pray that this may be a valuable resource to expand this ministry, and we welcome your partnership. There's a link in the description to our Amazon page where you can buy the book. As always, your comments are welcome. Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Hello, Johnny. Hello, everyone. Okay, so today we're going to discuss book two of Paradise Lost. And this past Monday on The Christian Atheist, what did you pull out of that? We called this Christian Atheist on Paradise Lost book two, Evil Pathogenic. And we relate it to the recent pandemic with a virus gone um, viral, (laughs) for lack of a better term. Okay. And so today we want to discuss the entire book too. But if you'd like to hear how John pulled out evil pathogenic, um, you can go back and listen to Monday's episode. Okay. So John, book two, how would you sum it up in as few words as possible? We originally, as we looked at this book, thought that maybe a good way to characterize it would have been evil deliberative. And that's probably the best way still to understand how this book begins and really the process of the book, because Satan and his minions are discussing how best to achieve their end, annoying God, getting under his skin Mm -hmm. and thwarting all of his plans for goodness. Right. So how does this book open? It opens, as it says, high on a throne of royal state, by merit raised to that bad eminence, Satan sat and aspires beyond thus high, insatiate to pursue vain war with heaven, and by success untaught, his proud imaginations thus displayed. I mean, there's so much going on in that first paragraph, that opening part of book two, because it talks about Satan being raised by merit to his position. But merit is a good thing, and it therefore only comes from God. And yet there is a merit of evil, too, for Satan. So he is the most evil of creatures, and therefore by merit has the position of authority amongst all the demons. Right. And also, in aspiring to the seat of God, which is what we saw in book one, he is by success untaught. That is, he's failed utterly to defeat God, and yet he still aspires to take over heaven's throne. And then, I love this last portion, Mm -hmm. in this way, he has his proud imaginations thus displayed, because it is only through imagination that the demons can possibly believe that they can take heaven. Right. If they're living in the real world, they know 
they've been utterly cast out, and they have no chance whatsoever. And yet, so again, we see the self-deception that is inherent in evil. Right, right. So introducing what is about to happen in book two, Satan says, we're going to attempt to take back heaven because it is our just inheritance of old. And then he says what we're going to do is debate by what best way, and this is the quote, whether of open war or covert guile, we now debate. Who can advise may speak. And so if you remember, as we ended book one last time, they were gathered together in the what essentially is the temple of pandemonium mm-hmm. to worship their great leader, Satan. Right. So they actually haven't given over the worship or the subjection of heaven. Yeah. They've just true. gained a different leader. Right. Exactly. So book two, as you said, opens with Satan on his throne, saying that heaven is still open for them to conquer. And he opens the floor to debate. And it's sort of funny that Satan and his host of demons even do things according to rules. Right. You know? Right. It's almost like deliberations. It's almost like they're having a business meeting Mm -hmm. and the boss has set out the goals of what we want to do. And now we're entertaining the means to achieve our ends. Exactly. And that's a really important point, because as we've said repeatedly, the ethics of evil is always whatever means are necessary to achieve our ends. Exactly. Okay, so who are the speakers in this debate? It's Moloch, Belial, Mammon. Beelzebub? Right. So it's the three of them. Well, four. Four if you count Beelzebub. You never count Beelzebub. (laughs) There there are three counselors that arise, and then Beelzebub stands up and takes Satan's position. I guess he doesn't count because he already, like you said before, it's already been planned. It's almost like it's a foregone conclusion. And that's why another one of those self-deceptions Satan is not called the father of lies for no reason. He even lies to his followers because he makes it seem as though this is an open debate, mm-hmm. but becomes very clear when Beelzebub speaks that Satan already has the plan in hand and he intends to go through with it no matter what the debate ends up. Right. And up till this point, it's almost like Satan and Beelzebub are, Beelzebub's kind of like his right hand man, right? Correct. Yep. Okay. So here's a challenge, John. You have an immense vocabulary. So as we discuss each speaker's argument, I want you to start by giving me in the fewest words possible, which is very difficult for you, (laughs) a title for their argument, okay? And you get more points if you can nail it in just one really good word, all right? I'll do my best. Okay. So let's start with Moloch. What would you say to sum up his argument? I think Moloch is best characterized by simply brute force. Well, you and I come from the 80s, so he's kind of the jock Mm -hmm. of the school. Mm -hmm. He's the dumb sports guy, (laughs) I guess I'm offending half our listeners now, who knows nothing but how to act with his brute force to achieve his ends. I mean, remember the berserker orcs? Kind of like them, right? Let's just go in and we don't care about ourselves. Just whatever, destroy as much as possible, even if it means self-annihilation. Right. And so... What we're going to look at at each of these three counselors is not what ends they're seeking to achieve because Satan has laid them out very clearly. What we're trying to look at is the means to achieve those ends. And for Moloch, the answer is simply open war. Right. 
And another way I thought of maybe characterizing Moloch, and, and sorry, you only gave me one chance to put it into <laughs> simple words, but yeah. I thought to be or not to be yeah. might yeah. also be good, and we'll That's see good. why. Mm-hmm. So his thing is basically revenge, right? And try at least make things as uncomfortable as possible in heaven. Okay, so why don't you read what he says, some, some of the, the key points. Moloch stands up and says, My sentence is for open war. Of wiles, more unexpert, I boast not. And so he's sort of the Achilles of this epic poem. He is for open war. He's not worried about how to plot and plan and the use of what Satan called covert guile to achieve their ends. He wants the open and clear path of war in order to achieve his ends. He's not Odysseus. He is Achilles, if we're aware of, of who the two of those are. More like the jock than the, than the school nerd. <laughs> yes, more like the jock than the nerd. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thinks with his muscle rather than his brain. <laughs> Precisely. That's mean. That's terrible. <laughs> uh, so what he says, we're going to turn our tortures into horrid arms against the torturer. I was going to say, he, he calls God the torturer. Right. So he resents and resentment is something that plays throughout all of the evil characters in Paradise Lost. It's one of the fundamental characteristics of evil. And Nietzsche himself makes a point of that. Resentiment. He uses the French, which makes it sound prettier, but it's still just resentment. Resentment is one of the fundamental characteristics of the evil in I our mean, world. That plays all through the Bible, too, all through the Old Testament. Right. Exactly right. So his counsel is to turn God's punishments against him. And he says that in our proper motion, we ascend up to our native seat. We should come directly at God, face him square face to face and seek to unseat him. And he says then, line 96, God will either quite consume us and reduce to nothing this essential, happier far than miserable to have eternal being. So it's like, I would rather not be and suffer like this. And therefore, what we should do is go at God full force, make him angry, incite his ire against us, and he will destroy us utterly and our suffering will cease. Exactly. He says, our, and we'll end with this from Moloch, our power is sufficient to disturb his heaven, which, if not victory, is yet revenge. Right. Making it as uncomfortable. As uncomfortable as possible for God, who has made it utterly uncomfortable for them in their punishment. Okay, so the next speaker is Belial. What would you say in one word, at least one word? Sophistry. Oh, good. Yeah. That's good one. That's a very good one. Well, as a philosopher, right? A philosopher who especially has taught Plato extensively. Sophistry is the idea of clever but false reasoning. And this is characteristic of evil as well. It's constantly using the mind, rationality, to come up with reasons to achieve its own goals, and yet isn't really reasoning well mm -hmm. or fairly or taking proper awareness of the true evidence around them. Right. So, Belial he doesn't want to be punished worse than what they already have, right? Where they find themselves. Basically, he just kind of wants to make the best of a bad situation. And, and even though he hates heaven, 
he hopes for some sort of grace. I guess he does say something like that towards the end. Maybe if we do not act overtly against God, his ire will lessen and therefore our punishments will lessen. So I think maybe you're right on that point. But the first thing he does is to take down Moloch's argument. He says, Moloch grounds, and this is a quote, grounds his courage on despair and utter dissolution. Mm -hmm. It's like the end that you're seeking, Moloch, is for us to be destroyed. So he says a little farther down, we must exasperate the almighty victor to spend all his rage and that must end us. That must be our cure to be no more. Sad cure for who would lose, though full of pain, this intellectual being. And so we see here not the valor of the warrior who is willing, as Moloch was, to throw his life away in pursuit of the goal, right? even if the goal is only spite. Mm-hmm. He is more the coward, the intellectual coward. So Belial is more the character of Odysseus, willing to use his mind to play things out, to fight the battle. And he wants to hold on, not that Odysseus was a coward, but he wants to hold on to his life at least as something valuable. And he says, okay, I don't think it's worthwhile us throwing away our intellectual being, that is, our life, our rationality. And then he says, even so, Moloch, is it the case that God would actually take our lives from us? Mm -hmm. He says, let this be good. Let me just assume that being canceled would be a good thing. He says, we still are left with the question, whether our angry foe can give it or ever will. Yeah. How how he can is doubtful. Mm -hmm. That he never will is sure because they are destined to eternal punishment. They know that. They've been told that. God made it clear that their punishment would be eternal. And therefore, God does not go back on his promises that he will destroy them would never be the case. So at least Belial is willing to face the facts at one level. Yeah. And then he says, is this then worse than sitting thus consulting, thus in arms? Is truly being destroyed better than this? I mean, we're at least sitting here in council, talking with one another, plotting against God. Isn't there some value in that? He said, when we were thrown down to hell, this hell then seemed a refuge from all of those wounds that God's angels were inflicting upon us. So his conclusion, this would be worse war, therefore, open or concealed, alike my voice dissuades. So we should not go to war with God. Shall we then live thus vile? The race of heaven thus trampled, thus expelled, to suffer here, chains, and these torments? Better these than worse, by my advice. This is now our doom, he says, which, if we can sustain and bear our supreme foe in time, and this is what you were talking about, Mm -hmm. right, this grace thing, may much remit his anger, and perhaps thus far removed, not mind us, not offending, satisfied with what is punished. And he says, we may, in addition, become more familiar with all of these pains, and this horror will grow mild, this darkness light. Besides, 
What hope the never-ending flight of future days may bring? What chance? What change worth waiting? Since our present lot appears for happy, though but ill, for ill not worst, if we procure not to ourselves more woe. So it may be clever but false reasoning, but there's a core of real reasoning there. It's like, why should we provoke God to even more anger and more suffering? Let's, Let's sort of just play our cards close to our chest here and see how things go. Okay, so mammon is next. What would you say about mammon, John? I think the word I would use for mammon is opportunism. (laughs) Okay, so he's kind of like Belial, where he wants to make the best of a bad situation. He wants to capitalize on it and say, hey, let's make uh, hell better than heaven. And I think the term capitalize is really good, because you can almost see mammon as a bit of a realtor sending out brochures that advertise for lakefront property on lake the of, lake of fire lake of firefront property <laughs> and you know he's always trying to make the best of a bad situation yeah. by turning it as far as possible into a good situation yeah, tired so, tired of streets of gold <laughs> come, come try to our of fire. lake of fire <laughs> <laughs> okay so it seems like he's the one that all the demons agree with so why don't you read some of the things that he says right so he picks up on the point that belial made and he says suppose god should relent and publish grace to all on promise made of new subjection with what eyes could we stand in his presence humble and receive strict laws imposed to celebrate his throne with warbled hymns and to his godhead sing forced hallelujahs while he lordly sits our envied sovereign and his altar breathes ambrosial odors and ambrosial flowers our servile offerings this must be our task in heaven this our delight how wearisome eternity so spent in worship paid to whom we hate and so this is setting forth the utter repulsion that they feel towards subjugating themselves to God. Yeah, singing forced hallelujahs to whom they hate. Right. So instead, he says, let us rather seek our own good from ourselves and from our own live to ourselves, though in this vast recess, free and to none accountable, preferring hard liberty before the easy yoke of servile pomp. And so there we see the capitalist ethos of knuckling down to a hard situation, working hard to make things better on our own, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and making the situation as good as it can possibly be. Great. So he says we may thrive under evil and work ease out of pain through labor and endurance. So this definitely sounds like the conservative ethos of how to, you know, work in our world and achieve great things. Great. As he our darkness, cannot we his light imitate when we please? This desert soil wants not her hidden luster, gems, and gold. Remember all the things that they've already produced in the city of Pandemonium. Nor want we skill or art from whence to raise magnificence. And what can heaven show more? Our torments also may, in length of time, become our elements." These piercing flames, as soft as now severe, 
our temper changed into their temper, which must needs remove the sensible of pains. All things invite to peaceful counsels, the settled state of order, how in best we may compose our present evils. With regard of what we are and where, dismissing quite all thoughts of war, ye have what I advise. And so Mammon is literally advising peace with heaven, although not love of God. As a competitor of heaven. Right. And so in its own way, Mammon is trying to achieve what Satan said in book one, making a heaven of hell. Okay, so thus ends Mammon. (laughs) Okay, so those were the three, Moloch, Belial, and Mammon. And then comes Beelzebub. What would you say about Beelzebub's argument? And we know that this is already the argument everybody's going to approve of. Right, so it starts out with the demons applauding Mammon. And it seems as though they're all going to go Mammon's way. But Beelzebub stands up, having seen the great acclamation given to the argument of Mammon. And it says, deep on his front engraven, deliberation sat, and public care. And you'll note here he's coming across as a humanitarian or a demonitarian. (laughs) Um, Sage he stood. And so he's a wise elder statesman. When you say that, it reminds me of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters at the end when the demons have their meeting. And that's exactly right. So clearly, Beelzebub has a different agenda in store. He's heard all the arguments, but he knows that his position as Satan's right-hand man is to sway the crowd in the direction that Satan has already predetermined. And Beelzebub, basically, he prefers the freedom of hell over the servitude of heaven. But eventually, he points out that even hell, they're subject to God. Okay, so picking up what his argument begins with, he says this, Nor shall we need with dangerous expedition to invade heaven. Well, for one thing, everyone knows that that's a vain attempt. Right, so he kind of discounts Moloch's argument. Whose high walls fear no assault or siege or ambush, from the deep. And then he asks this question. What if we find some easier enterprise? There is a place, if ancient and prophetic fame in heaven err not. And if you remember last week, we talked about the conversation between Satan and Beelzebub about a rumor in heaven about the creation of a new creature that would be blessed by God. And that's exactly what he's referring to here. There is a place, if ancient and prophetic fame in heaven err not, another world, the happy seat of some new race, called man, about this time to be created like us, though less in power and excellence, but favored more of him who rules above. Thither let us bend all our thoughts, to learn what creatures there inhabit, of what mold or substance, how endued, and what their power and their weakness, how attempted best by force or subtlety, though heaven be shut, and heaven's high arbitrator sits secure in his own strength, this place may lie exposed. And here we have the argument, because the idea here is trying to assault heaven is vain. 
sitting here and doing nothing is not something that evil is content to do because the whole purpose of evil is to thwart good. Right, that was Belial's argument. Right, and then third, it's useless for us to try to build an empire in competition with heaven because heaven has all that is good. Right, and that was Mammon's argument. And so what's the best that evil can do? Spread evil. Right. And that's the pathogenic argument. Or corrupt good or corrupt what God create. Right. And that's the the pathogen. It's like we want to stick this virus of evil into every place that God has opened up good and corrupt it. Right. So basically, Beelzebub is saying there's a rumor that God is creating a new world. So let's find it and corrupt it, pervert it. And like you said, Satan's the one who came up with this first in book one. Right. In fact, he refers back to that. He says, thus Beelzebub pleaded his devilish counsel, first devised by Satan, and in part proposed. For whence but from the author of all ill could spring so deep a malice, and earth with hell to mingle and involve, and there's that metaphor of the virus, done all to spite the great creator, And there's that notion of the whole thing of spite and resentment Mm -hmm. being the underlying motive that drives everything that evil does. And it's even in today's world, we see it. I think the virus analogy is perfect. I really think that's a good one. Okay, so next everyone votes that Beelzebub's plan is the way to go, right? And the problem is they need someone to volunteer to find that new world. Right. So Beelzebub says, but first, whom shall we send in search of this new world? And they're aware that hell is separated from heaven and everything else by a vast void, by a series of gates and barriers that are meant to lock evil out from the rest of God's creation. For on whom we send, Beelzebub says, the weight of all and our last hope relies. But all sat mute, till at last Satan, whom now transcendent glory raised above his fellows with monarchical pride, conscious of highest worth, unmoved, thus spake, O progeny of heaven, imperial thrones, with reason hath deep silence and demure seized us, though undismayed. And he says, I will go. I will be your bulwark against the goodness of God and protect you. And of course, the payment for that Mm -hmm. is to be the prince of darkness himself. Right, right, the leader. He will get the ruler of hell designation, huh? And that section ends with this. And I think it's important to bring it out because it shows that although the demons refuse to bow to God Mm -hmm. in hell, they end up doing exactly the same thing that they were supposedly so disgusted by in heaven. It says, Towards him, that is Satan, they bend, with awful reverence prone, and as a god extol him equal to the highest in heaven. Nor failed they to express how much they praised that for the general safety he despised his own. For neither do the spirits damned, lose all their virtue. Thus they their doubtful consultations dark ended, rejoicing in their matchless chief. 
So what happened to the grand sentiments of better to rule in hell than serve in heaven? And you'll notice also that there's a a sort of a dark inversion of the sacrifice of Christ being made here that we'll see next time in book three. Okay, so Dayton has dramatically volunteered to go and he goes off to find the new world and the demons all go about making themselves at home in hell. One of the interesting things is they find new terrors everywhere in hell in their homemaking. Okay, so now the palm shifts to Satan at the nine gates of hell where he encounters two very strange kind of creepy beings. And these two beings are like guards. One has the upper half of a woman and the lower half of a snake with kind of like a creepy pack of hellhounds surrounding her waist. And the other one is just a black figure. Do you want to read that? Sure. It says here, Before the gates there sat on either side a formidable shape. The one seemed woman to the waist, and fair, but ended foul, in many a scaly fold. Sort of like Tolkien with Aragorn. Right. Looks fair, feels foul. Looks looks fair, feels foul, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I always get mixed up with that one. <laughs> All right, go ahead. But ended foul in many a scaly fold, voluminous and vast, a serpent armed with mortal sting. About her middle round, a cry of hellhounds never ceasing barked, with wide Cerberian mouths full loud, and rung a hideous peal. Yet, when they list, would creep, if aught disturbed their noise, into her womb and kennel there. Yet there still barked and howled within unseen." The other shape, if shape it might be called, that shape had none, distinguishable in member, joint, or limb, or substance might be called that shadow seemed, for each seemed either, black it stood as night, fierce as ten furies, terrible as hell, and shook a dreadful dart. Okay, so we have two figures here. (laughs) One is a woman that's half snake, and another is a black figure, And then, of course, I guess there's a third one. There's the hounds going around her waist. This kind of gets kind of weird. I guess that's to say the least, right? Okay, so Satan demands passage through the gate, and both of them are one of them. The dark figure. Okay, okay, that's right. And the dark figure kind of doesn't take Satan seriously, and he wants to fight with him, but the uh, snake woman interrupts them, Sim, and she ends up calling herself Satan's daughter, And then she gives the revelation that the black figure is Satan's son. And it gets really mixed up at this point. But all of these things Satan has no idea about. So why don't you take up there from the poem? In this infernal veil, Satan says, first met, thou callst me father? And that phantasm callst my son? I know thee not nor ever saw till now sight more detestable than him and thee, to whom the portress of Hellgate replied, Hast thou forgot me then? And do I seem now in thine eye so foul? Once deemed so fair in heaven, when at the assembly, and in sight of all the seraphim with thee combined, in bold conspiracy against heaven's king, all on a sudden miserable pain surprise thee. Dim thine eyes, and dizzy swum in darkness, while thy head flames thick and fast through forth, till on the left side opening wide, likest to thee in shape and countenance bright, then shining heavenly fair, a goddess armed out of thy head I sprung. 
And this, of course, is figuring the birth of Athena from Zeus in Greek mythology. Amazement seized all the host of heaven. Back they recoiled, afraid at first, and called me sin, and for a sign portentous held me. But familiar grown, I pleased, and with attractive graces, one the most averse, thee, Satan, chiefly, who fool off thyself in me, thy perfect image viewing, becamest enamored, and such joy thou took'st with me in secret, that my womb conceived a growing burden. Meanwhile, she says, the war in heaven took place, and everyone was thrown out. And she says, I too was thrown from heaven, at which time this powerful key into my hands was given, with charge to keep these gates forever shut, which none can pass without my opening. So she arrives in hell. And this seriously has all the makings of like a fantasy movie today, you know it? A Netflix series. So she says she is sin, and she came out of Satan's head when he first decided to turn on God. And then it gets a little more spicy because we find out that Satan impregnated his daughter, Sin, and she gave birth to this dark figure who ends up being death. And sin, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth death, as it says in James. And you know, it's not beautiful in the sense of beautiful, but it's beautiful the way Milton does this. You know what I'm saying? What would be a better word than beautiful? Insightful? Artful. Okay, that's that's good. I really, really, really appreciate the way Milton portrays sin, death, the hounds of hell. Right. And Satan stands up against death and says, stand back. I'm going to go through this and you can't stop me. And she stands between the two of them and says, oh, father, what intends thy hand? She cried against thy only son. And again, there's that inversion, that evil inversion, thy only son, just as Jesus is the only son of God. What fury, O son, possesses thee to bend that mortal dart against thy father's head? And knowst for whom? Of spirits that in our just pretenses armed fell with us from on high. From them I go, this uncouth errant soul, and one for all myself exposed. So Satan here is making the plea that he is acting on the part of all of the fallen demons, including those guarding the gates here. And then he says, look, when I get there, I will bring you to the place where you and death shall dwell at ease. There ye shall be fed and filled immeasurably. All things shall be your prey. Okay, so one thing you forgot to mention is that she gave birth to the dark figure from Satan, but then again, the dark figure is death, raped sin, and she gives birth to the hounds of hell. So, and they hate each other. All of them hate each other. And to the reader's utter amazement, We find that Satan has forgotten all of this, this seriously weird stuff, (laughs) and that she needs to tell him, remind him of all of this. So she eventually obeys her father, opens the gate, and now Satan jumps into the darkness, the dark abyss. And he has to pass through chaos and dark night and chance in order to find this new realm that God has created fresh and clean. Well... Also, he he meets, did, what did you say? Chaos, chance, night, confusion, and discord. Yeah. And he says, hey, do you know where the earth is? And they're like, well, as a crow flies. And like you said, 
they're eager to help him with his goals. Right, so Satan crosses over all of these barriers that God has in place to keep evil from infecting the rest of creation. And sin and death construct behind him a pathway from hell across all of these barriers so that in future all of hell can invade. Sort of like a bridge. Right, and can invade this new realm that God has created good. Sort of like, (laughs) if you want to bring it into modern times, Thor's Rainbow Bridge. (laughs) That means nothing to me. I'm an ignoramus on current culture, so... (laughs) Just take my word for it. Okay. (laughs) We'll have to accept that maybe most of our listeners will understand that reference, but I don't. So Milton compares Satan's journey to Ulysses, right? Yes. At this point. Even to the Argonauts. Okay. Okay, he does. I'm not sure. Nothing to say about it. Okay. (laughs) I love when I get you to the point where you have nothing to say. (laughs) Anyway, the bridge allows demons to pass to earth in the future. Right, and I think we can end this with one of those broad conceptions of what evil does. What is that? Evil breaks down barriers that are put in place by God, by tradition, by law, that are meant to protect us, that we have largely lost the understanding of why they're there, but they're there because they serve an important purpose. And evil seeks always to destroy those barriers and open up all of the communications with everything else. And and the interesting thing is it can't be closed again because the the gates cannot be closed again now. And so, right. And once we open these barriers, it's like almost impossible to close them up again. That's exactly right. And that's where we are in today's culture. Okay. So as we go through this, I can't express how astounded I am at the imagery Do you know what I'm seeing? I said this in book one, and I say this again now. It it really is beautiful. And I know that that word, when we're describing evil in this place, seems a little out of place. But as we move on through the rest of Paradise Lost, the idea of beauty in the language, in the imagery that Milton puts in place is just astounding. It is. Okay, maybe we shouldn't say beautiful. Maybe we should say astounding. Okay, If you haven't started reading Paradise Lost yourself, you might be able to squeeze it in during your drive to work or, you know, during a walk when you walk your dog through our audio version without commentary that John read. You read the entire poem and posted it on podcasts, but also on YouTube in a playlist. And you have the link in the description, Don? I do. Good. Okay, so if you're listening to us on YouTube... We'd love for you to subscribe, and I try to keep our notifications to a minimum so you're not continually being bombarded with stuff. Be sure to listen on Monday to The Christian Atheist when John starts talking about book three. Is there any teasers to book three? Well, I don't think you can expect quite the level of drama from book three that we found in books one and two, because it's in heaven. It's more like a worship. You know what I mean? More like a worship service. It's it's like the calm between the storms, I guess. Very true. And then listen on Thursday and we'll be discussing book three. Okay, so thank you for joining us and hope you're having a great week. If you have anything you want to say to us, get in touch. Love to hear from you. And John tries to answer everybody. 
As always, if you want to buy us a cup of coffee, you can use the link in the description to do that. We'll see you all next week, and thanks again for listening to us. Thanks for doing this with me, love. I love you, John. I love you. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.